the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Hour number two on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. Well, we've been discussing a bit of the uh, political stalemate in Washington, D.C. I think it's important to be ever mindful that unlike, well, frankly, not that many years ago, when we seem to go um, with breathers between election cycles, we would finish one election, and if it was a midterm, it'd be about a year before anybody even began really seriously talking about what was coming up Uh, at the beginning of the next election cycle. Well, those days are over with. One election ends, and before you know it, we're already concerned about what's going to happen in 24 months. Uh, This certainly heightened in recent years because of the power shift that continues to uh, facilitate itself in Washington, D.C., Very few of the pundits, and what were the numbers, like 85% guaranteed that Hillary Clinton was going to win on election night in 2016. Surprise! Of course, no one would have anticipated what happened in November of last year. And so with that thought in mind, looking forward to November of 2020, critically important, especially so um, as we've seen a bit of a paradigm shift that maybe few people really fully understand as best as my next guest. He is Craig Huey. He is the author of The Huey Report. He is an accomplished speaker and publisher and um, oftentimes uh, speaks internationally at corporate gatherings, seminars, conferences, and whatnot. He's also a frequent commentator on Fox News. And, um, Craig, always great to have you on the program. As I say, two Craigs are better than one. i got to ask you, just going out the gate here, Boy, if there was anything that demonstrated a, uh-oh, better look out, that was the routing that Republicans took in Orange County this past November. That had always been kind of the holdout, so to speak. And, and uh, yeah, we had smatterings of, of Republican representation in other parts of the state, certainly here in Northern California, people like Tom McClintock and others. But it always seemed as if Orange County was safe until this past November. What happened? Wow, Craig. Well, it's great to be back. And, you know, a a lot of people were absolutely shocked and the consequences of what happened in Orange County and elsewhere uh, is so disturbing. It's disturbing because it's going it's leading to more government control, uh, um, uh, more more uh, socialism. It's leading to uh, attacks on religious liberty uh, and it's leading to a 2020 election that none of your listeners are going to like. And and, and in Orange County, and uh, you you see such a great case of how the progressive left, how the Democrats and the socialists mobilized their base in the most advanced marketing to be able to win the election. They didn't win it because they're right on the issues. They didn't win it because most people agreed with their positions. They won it because they outsmarted the Republicans. They outsmarted the candidates with the most advanced marketing. And that's the danger for 2020. 
You know, what's surprising about this, uh, it's not as if either party is um, living in a fog. And, and, you know, it's interesting because um, three years ago, two years ago, when President Donald Trump won, everybody said, wow, you know, the Republicans have really got their act together. The Democrats, they are living in the last century. They don't know how to organize. They don't know how to recruit. They don't know how to turn out the vote. <laughs> and here we yeah. are two years later, we've just flipped names. What have they What have they lommed on to here? What's the secret sauce, Craig, in your opinion? Because at the end of the day, most of the people that I talk to, and, 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 and granted, uh, you know, I'm here on a conservative Christian radio station, so it's not like there's a bunch of screaming liberals at my left and at my right. But that said, most of the people that I talk to are not a part of the, of the ultimate extremes. They're not a part of the 10% on either side of the right or left that will never have their minds changed, that will follow either Nancy Pelosi or um, Donald Trump off the clip no matter what they say or do. I'm not talking about that group. I'm talking about everybody else in the middle that looks at the two extremes and says, what is going on and how can they, in a day and an age when, you know, you say to people, free education for all, nobody ever stops to say who's going to pay for it. What is the secret sauce, in your opinion, that allowed Democrats to be able to, to turn about such a significant change in, what, 40 seats, all told, that were lost in the House, and again, the the absolute routing that took place in SoCal. And Craig, not only uh, Southern California, but in uh, Tennessee, in Nevada, in Arizona, all over, seats that uh, conservative and and Christian conservatives and 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 libertarian leaning conservatives they they almost lost and you know Cruz almost lost in Texas and Scott almost lost in Florida and in Arizona there's now a Democrat progressive left uh, 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 senator in Nevada it, it was a wipeout in congressional districts and in the U.S. Senate nationwide. In fact, the Assembly and State Senate across the United States turned from red to blue, state after state. And here's the two reasons why. One, the Democrats and the progressive left organized with a formula that the conservatives and Republicans did not have. And two, the church that had been mobilized and activated Back in 2016 for Donald Trump, they were asleep, and especially in California. It was a sleeping giant, and ignored the election. And, and uh, you know, I give the victory for Donald Trump. He was outspent. You know, Hillary raised and spent $1.4 billion, Craig. Donald spent $957 million. Now, that's still a lot of money, but he outdid her with doing basically the formula the progressive left did to win the 2018 election. And, 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 um, and the Republicans didn't do a thing. Uh, they, they, they acted as if it was politics 15 years ago. And the Democrats, they were using the most advanced uh, marketing strategies. And then the church, um, I spoke probably to maybe 2,000 pastors in 2018 about the election. I spoke to 500 pastors in San Diego area that were Hispanic pastors. They, 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 they speak Spanish uh, and, and, and only Spanish. I had to have an interpreter. 
these pastors, for the first time I saw that they were really getting interested in what was going on. They see how our, our rights are being eroded, how the Church is being attacked, how Christian values are under assault. But they didn't mobilize like Donald Trump was able to mobilize the swing state churches in Wisconsin and Florida and, and these states that won them the election. So those are the two main things. And, and it doesn't have to happen, but it's going to happen if, if, uh, if the two things aren't corrected quickly, because the election has already started. Is there that a lot is. of false confidence that's behind this, too? And I asked that question. Uh-huh. I made reference earlier to the notion that uh, the night of the election, we sat here, we were doing election night coverage, and we were watching all the major networks saying, oh, 85% chance, Hillary Clinton, this thing is in the bag. <laughs> and, 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 and curiously, at one point, turned over to MSNBC, and there on the set was Michael Moore, and Michael Moore, disheveled looking with the baseball cap on, it looks like he just, you know, stepped out of a, a you know, a, the, the Giants, Giants baseball game in the bleachers, right. having watched, you know, a doubleheader, uh, turned to the camera and said, don't underestimate the power and influence of Donald Trump and what he has done yeah. in capturing the attention of many key states during this election. And it's interesting because there was that attitude, and we saw it after the fact, or even during the fact, rather. Uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton barely gave a second thought to either one of those states. There was this predominant attitude, ah, we got this. Don't have to worry. We got this. Did that, yeah. did that sneak into the Republican side after the Trump victory that we came to the midterm elections and in a lot of cases many voters just felt as if, hey, we got this, and there wasn't that need to turn out to the polls, especially amongst the evangelical voters? I'm sure that was part of it. Uh, if you go back to what happened, you know, the Democrats thought Hillary was going to win. The Republicans thought Hillary was going to win. The, the, the Democratic leadership and consultants thought Hillary was going to win. The Republican consultants thought she was going to win. Hillary thought she was going to win, and Donald thought she was going to win. And, and what they didn't take into consideration was, yeah, they're, they're, she was using old marketing skills from the Obama team that were outdated. That, that, that was one huge fault. She wouldn't engage. She didn't even take an interview in Christianity Today or any of the uh, – tried to do any outreach to the Christians. In fact, it was just the opposite. And so what happened in the churches in Wisconsin, what have you, the pastors would get up and they would say, who's not registered to vote? And they'd pass out the registration list. And then they would have people within the church who went to their, uh, uh, who went to their small groups and went to their church membership. And on Election Day, they made sure those people went out to vote. Those were low-propensity voters. In other words, voters who normally don't go to the poll. The polls never saw it. Nobody knew it was happening, and yet it was the church that went out in a massive way. Donald Trump got 81% of the evangelical vote. That's never happened before. 27% of all the voters were evangelicals, and, and, and then it, was, it collapsed in the year 2018. It just collapsed, especially here in California. And it was an absolute disaster. So, Craig, 
what what happened was they gathered their volunteers, they knew who the potential voters were, and then they did a thing called ballot harvesting. And that transformed this election. And I was warned about this. It was not a secret. They took advantage of it. The Republicans and conservatives and the church did not. And we've got to take advantage of it now. Well, certainly so, because if, if there's any lessons to be learned, I mean, I, the the darling of the progressive left, who six months ago was completely unknown and today mm-hmm. is dominating the headlines every day, whether it's liberal side of the media or the conservative side, who would have thought that a little 29-year-old, I've got 29 years old, I have ties in my closet older than that. And yet there is Ocasio-Cortez and the media is hanging on her every word. And you've got to think, wait, what? What? Let's pause on that point. I want to come back and get some insights from Keg Huey on that issue and more. Um, there's a lot of top-tier issues as well that seem to kind of get dropped off by the wayside. Um, everything from health care to dealing with um, certainly immigration reform was DOA, repeal and replace seemed to be a DOA over the course of the, uh, uh, the two years of con- Republican control of both houses. So um, where, where do we see this thing moving forward? And um, ballot harvesting, you know, at the end of the day, it's not, uh, not voter fraud, but it is very effective. Let's come back to more of our conversation. Craig Huey is with us today, author and editor of The Huey Report. You can get more information on the web at craighuey.com. All right, 620. Let's get an update traffic-wise. What's going on out there? A glimpse at the road ahead with Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. We are visiting today with a political insight and author of the Huey Report, Craig Huey, talking about uh, what happened in November of 2018 and whether or not it is poised to happen again come November of 2020. You're suggesting in very emphatic terms here, Craig, that uh, unless the the act has gotten together, it'll happen again. And, you know, one thing has been the, the amazement that many of us have looked on at what has happened with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 29-year-old kid, and boy, not only is she capturing votes in um, New York in order to um, gain a seat in the House of Representatives, somebody on network television is writing or talking about her, rather, every single day. Is this part of the magic sauce, the ability to to capture young hearts and minds? It really is, Uh, and and, uh, it's an articulate platform basically of socialism and envy and, and, and a lot of mixture of hatred towards Israel and so much more. And, and, and it's very dangerous. And, you know, she is a perfect example. She was a community organizer. Many of the congressmen and assemblymen and state senators that were elected were community organizers. They knew how to organize the community, get out volunteers, identify the voters, and get them to the ballot. And, and right now, probably the, the, the most controversial thing that happened that caused some really good people to lose the election, like Congressman Dana Rohrabacher in Orange County, he, he was on the House floor just before the election talking about the 400 pastors in China 
that are under persecution because they signed a letter saying they would not obey the communist government. And the church is under persecution. He was defending China. He was the author of the bill, uh, and uh, Save the Christians from Genocide bill, uh, for the Christians in the Middle East. And he lost because of ballot harvesting. And, and what that was, what wiped everybody out, was something that in 18 states it's illegal. The other states it is legal. In California, they, they made it legal two years ago. And the progressive left took advantage of it. And what they did, they would have uh, somebody go to doors, get the ballots, and maybe they had 100, 200, 300, 400 ballots they would gather, and then go to the register of voters and hand them in. And they could do that even five days after the election. And, and under this law of ballot harvesting, you can go to retirement homes. You can do the, uh, go to uh, potlucks. They had uh, potlucks everywhere. And to go to the potluck, you had to bring your ballot. And then they would help you fill it out. And they filled it out based upon what they recommended. And it is open to fraud. It's a horrible thing, but it's the reality. And until it changes, uh, uh, we've got to live with it. And you know what Christians can do, Craig? Christians can have events at their church. If the pastor would organize a ballot harvesting day at the church, they could come in, they could have somebody talk about how to vote their values, vote for people who want to defend the persecuted church, vote for somebody who doesn't, who wants to defend homeschooling, vote for somebody who, um, uh, you know, is, is upholding Christian values. And people in the church can hand that over to somebody who takes it into the voter registration, and all of a sudden the church is voted. We've got to be as smart and smarter than what these organized uh, uh, people are that, that are winning these elections. And, and, and they're organized, they're purposeful, and they're outsmarting the Republicans and the conservatives and the libertarians and definitely the Christians. So what you're suggesting and, here is that as you analyze what happened in November, it is perhaps ultimately less about hardcore issues. I mentioned a few of them before the break, uh, you know, immigration reform, tax reform, um, free stuff, meaning, you know, uh, education from uh, cradle to grave for free. Don't worry about who pays for it. It is less about dealing with the issues and more about the old adage, grassroots, getting down there and getting out, working for every individual vote. And with this concept of, of voter harvesting, it's not voter fraud. It's not illegal, as Craig points out, in California. Uh, but it can be very manipulative. And, you know, I've seen this with my own parents. Hey, you know, I'm sitting here with my ballot, and uh, I don't really know who to vote for, for, uh, you know, Secretary of State here in California. Who do you recommend? Uh, and, and some ways it used to feel like I got three votes, mine, my mother's, and my father's. So they, they've essentially said, hey, what a great idea. And they've put the old adage of community organizing. And the last guy that I knew that, that knew how to be a community organizer went from being the junior senator of, um, of um, Illinois that nobody had ever heard of to two-term president of the United States. They've really learned how to catch the tiger by the tail, haven't they? They have. And, Craig, um, many of your uh, listeners uh, know of Corona, California, down in Southern California, out by Riverside. And Corona, California, there were actually uh, uh, three pastors running for city council. Now, in a normal election, they would have won. But because of the ballot harvesting, 
the Democrats were able to get so many people to vote down ticket and told them exactly who to vote for, for judges, for propositions, for state legislature, uh, for city council and school board, and, and it overwhelmed the normal election cycle. And that's what's happening in 2020. And if we don't do something about it, we're not going to only see uh, 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 the blue wave that happened. We're going to see a blue tsunami tsunami in 2020 that is going to uh, take back all the gains with the economy and religious protection and, and, and even the protection of the persecuted church. Uh, the, the, no administration, no president has ever defended the persecuted church and worked with countries all over the all over the world to protect Christians, as has uh, uh, Mike Pompeo and Sam Brownback, uh, the ambassador of religious liberty, and yet all that's going to be reversed if we don't take a stand. We've got to stand firm. We've got to do this wisely, and we've got to mobilize the Christian vote. And undoubtedly, you know, that notion, as I suggested earlier, of, ah, we got this. Well, it got the Democrats in trouble uh, two years ago, and it maybe got us in trouble um, two months ago. And it may create even more trouble if we think about taking or maintaining that same attitude two years from now. Craig Huey with some great insights, author, editor of the Huey Report. Information available on the web at craighuey.com. That's Craig H U. E-Y, Craig Huey, dot com. 631, let's get caught up in some traffic here. Shall we right quick, find out what's going on out there? Michael Bennett, what you say? Uh, somewhat innocuous sounding or obnoxious as the case may be sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days but in fact it is the theme from one of the best selling video games of all time Call of Duty and I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be or television and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool and yet out of the very same mouths will come well there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children how can you dare even suggest such a thing well which is it going to be folks can media, in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth, can they teach children or are they not teachers at all? 
Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can, out of one side of our mouth, suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool, and the other one say that they at the same time have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, Violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated, it is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded, so you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence, so you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words... When we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a you know take a joystick and make the you know little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in um, I believe it was Mississippi, had in Pearl, Mississippi. That student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are, are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, 
demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine, just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still, their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now, but boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion. I mean, we're spending, so I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing, and most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here. Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment, In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we as a society surprised? Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, five or six billion dollar a year video gaming industry says that their um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have um, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment, acting out in aggressive behavior, involvement in a violent manner with the authority, so on and so forth. What's the response to all of this? What should it be? I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. Outside of parents waking up to certain realities, is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying, you know what, just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies, we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games? Well, you know, um, as much as I'm a conservative politically and I don't like government intrusion generally, um, I think if we compare it to, uh, just like you said, you know, if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an X-rated movie, I think we can set some limits on children and adolescents. They are still under 
adult sort of authority and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of, of pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time, <laughs> uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation, their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition. And that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So... For everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents, talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem solve. And when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware, keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. Like there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me as you were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that, that kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of, of, of a false, distorted, sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world uh, in spite of the best efforts at 3D. But, but then, too, Dr. Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this, not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to, you know, engage in, in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort. But aren't we kind of – there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's where addictions come in. And there are definitely, you know, teenagers who, and, and young – especially young, young, men, young men who are addicted to video games. And the addiction comes from the pleasurable response. And unfortunately, 
there's there's like a gate in our brain and it's only going to let through certain sensations so for instance if i'm sitting here i'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever the brain um determines what is sensational what is new what is innovative and creative and it lets those sensations through which is why you have to have sort of different more creative worse violence at the higher levels using worse vet weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going and it allows your brain to take in that sensation and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher exactly. and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals uh, in, uh, enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, be, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your, and girls do too, but boys more so, get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. How far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors, and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Music
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.